Previously, we've discussed the Internet of Things, IoT, a physical network device that exchanges data. IoT devices are proliferating at a dizzying rate, and the cybersecurity community is scrambling to keep up. Organizations like the Center for Reverse Engineering and Assured Microelectronics, or the CREAM Lab, at Morgan State are doing their part to train the next generation of IoT cybersecurity researchers. In this episode, special guests Dr. Kevin Cornegay and Dr. Michelle Cornegay discuss IoT cybersecurity, what they're doing to raise awareness, and how they're recruiting and training cybersecurity talent to address IoT cybersecurity issues. Dr. Kevin Cornegay is the director of the Cybersecurity Assurance and Policy Center and the IoT security professor in the ECE department. His research interests include reverse engineering, hardware assurance, secure embedded system design, radio frequency and millimeter wave integrated circuit design, high-speed circuits, broadband wired and wireless communication systems, and cyber physical systems. Dr. Michelle Cornegay is Associate Director at the Cybersecurity Assurance and Policy Center and Associate Professor in the ECE Department. Her research interests include wireless security, solid-state power amplifier design using three to four semiconductors, high-frequency device characterization and modeling, and reconfigurable electronics. Kevin, Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you. And thanks for having us. Yeah, no, it's great to have you. I know um, uh, it is uh, a Zoom-filled existence these days in in the age of COVID, and so I appreciate you um, taking a little bit of time for some extra Zoom uh, to talk about uh, IoT cybersecurity with us. Um, I know I had visited the Cream Lab um, a, a couple of years ago, uh, right, uh, I think you were you were just kind of getting underway, and um, we were just so excited about the environment that you were building and some of the um, some of the talent that you were cultivating. And so, I'm really excited to check in with you uh, and talk a little bit about what you're doing to um, to help bring into the uh, into the cybersecurity research field uh, fresh talent. Um, so, I, I like starting the show with this very simple question because uh, there, there are, um, uh, I, I don't know that there is consensus among the community, uh, but what is an IoT device exactly? We view it as, to uh, find it as an electronic device that interacts with the environment, collects data, um, formulates some decision about that data, and then us passes it passes it along to a higher decision making uh, authority. So it performs three functions: it senses, it processes, and it communicates. So performs those three primary functions. So examples, and they come in a wide variety of shapes and forms and so forth. So it could be a simple humidity or, or water sensor that's out in a field that's in a remote area, or it could be an automobile, you know, like a Tesla. So that's the, uh, those are two vastly differing examples. What's interesting is, you know, microelectronics have really grown up over, you know, the past 40 or 50 years, or, you know, depending on where you want to put the line in the sand, but things like cars and, uh, and sensors for agriculture um, it have existed in an analog way for a very long time, like much longer than that. So why is it that manufacturers are bringing digital components into these systems? Like what's the, what's the compelling use case for it? Ah, 
well, it's dr- mainly driven by the consumer. So, want you know, consumers have this insatiable need for more, 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 more functionality. So, with the evolution and advances in semiconductor technology, it can pack more transistors on a chip, and as such, you with more transistors, you can do more things, right? So. Today you have these, like for example, my my iMac. It's a multi-core. It has this multi-processor system. So you have these, and, and and because of advances in technology, you can shrink. You know, you can shrink many processors. That um, you know, one processor back in um, the, uh, back in you know ten years ago, you can pack. Uh, one processor in a one square centimeter area, whereas today you can probably pack eight or 16 with, uh, you know, with, uh, for example, you know, seven nanometer FinFET technology. So it's because of those advances. So with those multiple processors, you can do a lot of things. Right. So we're starting to see more digital components getting put into all of these things that were not computers before, right? For for reasons of serving the consumer and and and, and being able to build more functionality and do things cheaper. Um, one of the things that's so interesting is that a lot of these microelectronics now run you know, software, right? Like you have a, a software engineer who can who can write code and fundamentally change what that integrated circuit is doing more or less on the fly, right? Um, Michelle. Uh, Michelle, what what kinds of um, security concerns does that start to create that these things are so configurable and flexible and have have so much feature uh, built into them? Well, um, so in my area, I I look at um, wireless transmission, so electromagnetic transmission. You can't see it. You can't feel it. You can't taste it. But we know it exists because we're able to make phone calls. We're able to watch... uh, um, direct TV, uh, satellite TV. So we're able to do a lot of different things and it just opens up um, areas where folks can eavesdrop, they can listen because the interface is just so open. And because we're having a a proliferation of devices um, entering the market, um, again, the the biggest concern is about profit versus uh, security and privacy, because adding those additional things are going to um, incur some costs. And um, when we think about um, security, when we think about um, privacy, a lot of times the end user um, they just want to use the product, right? <laughs> uh, rather than read all the security, privacy, and user agreement um, information, they just really just want to use the product. So it does open up uh, a well of um, issues um, for users, um, for um, government and DOD, as we begin to use um, parts, um, whether it's through a supply chain where Folks can infiltrate, um, place trojans, and um, just little things that could uh, possibly leave our systems open and vulnerable. And 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 sometimes it's just you know software misconfiguration and bad credentials, right? Like we saw um, a week or two ago, 
the uh, the water supply down in Oldsmar, right? With uh, with TeamViewer instance that appears it was just on the internet. Some credentials may have been on, you know, like a black market compromised um, list, and somebody logged into, you know, into a, an ICS SCADA system and cranked up the the, the lie concentration, right? Um, yeah. So the, the so today we live in a society of where everything is connected to everything. So access that what that presents to. Uh, a bad actor is they can access, they can come from anywhere. You don't know. They don't have to be local. They don't require physical access. They can be, you know, in a shop, hack shop in, in China or Russia or in somewhere in the Middle East. So, and, and they could, they can cause, they can wreak havoc. And, and, and that's what keeps us up at night, but it also pays the bills, <laughs> helps to pay the bills. Right. Yeah. And, and Michelle, to your point, uh, so much of what drives consumer decision-making is it's the, it's the features. It's, it's what can I do with this device? It's not, is it secure against, you know, brute force attacks against a, a private key? Like people don't generally make decisions about that thing. And so, you know, in this, in this example, the, the reason that team viewer instance was hanging out on the internet was so that supervisors could check in and make sure that, you know, the, the values are within bands and, and they can monitor and there were legitimate purposes for, for remote access, particularly like in the, in the age of COVID. Um, but that flexibility and, and feature set is what created the attack surface for, uh, for, for an attacker to get in. And so, you know, one of the themes that we've had in guests that have come on, on the podcast is that, these IoT devices are just so dang useful. And so we're going to continue to see uh, a proliferation, I think, of these devices at a dizzying rate. More and more of these things coming to the market, more manufacturers putting more featureful products, stuff that we traditionally, you know, have used that didn't have digital components is going to continue to have more digital components. And, you know, in our case at Shift 5, we look at things like locomotives and um, uh, military weapon systems and, and maritime vessels. So you're going to see you see you see this infusion of digital technology coming into the space. Um, what I'm really interested in digging into with with you guys is that uh, you know you're answering the call of saying, okay, look, there's going to be a flood of these devices coming in. It's just that is going to happen. The 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 the, the economic use case is just too compelling. How do we as a cybersecurity community deal with this influx of components where the manufacturers historically haven't really thought a lot about cybersecurity and how do you know and 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 you know our our my conjecture you know especially trying to hire folks that um that are that are versed in 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 being able to look at these devices is that you know we are unable to keep up with this highly um trained and talented workforce of people that look at IoT cybersecurity devices. So tell me a little bit about uh, what at Morgan State you guys are doing to, to help raise the next generation of IoT cybersecurity professionals. Well, um, just, uh, that's a great uh, question. Um, we just uh, stood up a um, new PhD program that uh, in, entitled uh, Secure Embedded Systems. And within that program encompasses uh, a wide variety of, of, uh, of competencies that in particular areas to address this, this three 
headed uh, device. So uh, for the from the sensor side, they have to address security from all three aspects: the processor side, dealing with architectures, uh, even the communication side, dealing with protocols, the application side, dealing with AI, uh, uh, crypt. There's also cryptography. So the students have to have a wide range set of skills. And so uh, the PhD program is specifically designed to provide those skills uh, to the students. And it's a unique, it's the only one in the state of Maryland. Uh, one of, uh, I think it's the first in, in, um, in, in the nation, but it, but it really addresses the three, this three-headed uh, monster, and um, because of cybersecurity, uh, to address a lot of the problems, you have to be multifaceted, and there are um, plenty of stakeholders. So there's software engineering; it involves embedded systems design, uh, adversarial AI. There's all kinds of of nice. Uh, um, courses and it's also designed to to minimize to, to increase one to increase the production of, of PhD students to uh, to do so in the least amount of time it's very research intensive so students can start uh, um, they're uh, working on a research problem from day one and so uh, for example someone coming in, with a master's degree can finish uh, the program in two to three years, depending, you know, if they come in with a project and everything falls in line, they can finish. A bachelor's degree student can get a PhD um, in four years, four to five years. Again, assuming, and then there's the other issue, um, challenges, um, providing funds to support the student so we have a wide variety of, of options to support the, um, the students financially. Through we have various uh, fellowship programs, such as the the uh, DoD Cybersecurity Scholarship Program. Those are scholarship for service types of things, and then we also have our standard uh, CAP scholarship. And then you have your other fellowships that you know. Um, such as the NSF Graduate Research Fellowship, the SMART Fellowship, you have a host of, of op opportunities. But um, our students that enter our program are, are all funded through either um, sponsored research uh, grants with our industrial partners. So we also um, provide a, a very hands-on experiential experience for the students and where we involve, uh, again, we, we adopt a, it takes a village, raise a family uh, um, philosophy or strategy towards um, how we train and educate our, our students. So we involve our the stakeholders, um, you know, our partners, which include the, the federal agencies, and in DOD industry, um, who not only serve as mentors, but they also serve on the uh, students' dissertation committees. So, in, in the student along the way, students 
um, are involved with uh, other experiential learning experiences, such as internships, summer internships, and, and the like. So, so that where our job is that at the end of the student's journey, they have multiple options. So when they reach that decision point and where they're trying to decide, well, whether they're going to go industry, whether they're going to go, or they can decide early in terms of scholarship and service where they have to provide a year of service for each year of support they receive. So those are the variety of, of activities that we, we engage in to help prepare our students. And I just wanted to add to that is, um, so there has been a lot of focus, um, you know, with the initial startup with CAP, with developing our curriculum, particularly our graduate program and our undergraduate program, uh, where the goal is to support a pipeline of students from pre-freshman all the way up through the PhD program that um, Kevin just described. Um, our next phase is now to concentrate on going beyond um, before they actually get to college, where we're looking at the middle school students and the high school students um, and providing opportunities and activities um, for students. Um, right now, we, we have um, put on a proposal um, to support middle school females within Baltimore City, really directing our focus on underserved populations in the cyber community. Um, and also uh, one of the things I, I did wanted to mention was uh, also the fact that, you know, with um, there's still the divide, there's still this digital divide that exists as it relates to underserved populations. And one of the things that is near and dear to both of our hearts is being able to reach those populations, um, provide them the role models and experiences in order to attract, recruit, and retain them um, in these cyber areas because the diversity is definitely needed um, and can provide um, fruitful information to making and addressing um, the different cyber challenges that we have um, today. Yeah, so just to follow on with what Michelle said, um, it's not just diversity in the sense, true sense of diversity, but diversity of thought that we that you want to bring, that you have to bring to the table to address the cyber problem. Um, the other thing too is that that's unique about our program. And I'll just throw out a few a few stats. So. Um, Morgan, we traditionally, our student population is roughly about 80, close to 85% um, uh, African-American, which means, uh, and who are drawn from the, the local uh, counties, which means they are U.S. citizens. So we, we tap into that tremendous resource, find these diamonds in the rough, and we shape them form these students into these incredible uh, cybersecurity uh, engineers. The other thing is that, um, so of our PhD students in, in the program currently, about 83% of the students are US citizens, okay? 43% uh, are women, 
Okay, um, these are PhD students. Um, so, and we're very proud of that. But we, we, uh, you know, we work hard to, to, um, to establish that. And but that's the uniqueness of our program that sets us apart from our, our peers at Hopkins, um, uh, College Park, Baltimore County. So we call it the 80-20 rule. So whereas, you know, you look at their graduate, graduate student population at our peer institutions, they have 20% U.S. But yet getting to the, uh, to the, speaking to the digital divide that, so where uh, industry agencies, they pump money into the, so, the ROI they get they get back for that is twenty percent, whereas Morgan we're eighty percent. So imagine the impact we would have if they take some fraction of the investment that they make into these other you know peer institutions, and they put it into uh, schools like Morgan, and so I think. We're getting a lot of attention now because of the fact that folks are realizing, ah, they're on to something. You know, we need so so we're getting a, a lot of requests. Oh, we want you students, we want, but but then we ask, well, where's the relationship? We want the same relationship that you you have with the our peers so that we can deliver on, you know, um, at the you know at the same scales, but right. fortunately, and we worked hard at being the place. And now we've kind of flipped the script because we have our peers working in our lab. So the digital divide, we were able to invert that. So, anyways, I just wanted to yeah, no, it's I mean it's it's fascinating because um, first off, I mean it's. it's remarkable the pipeline that you've built um it's something that is is truly difficult to do um because so much of you know cybersecurity professionals that i've interacted with they came to it sort of on their own independently um you know like they got really into computer games and computer game hacking and that led into systems programming and that led into a, a job at you know the intelligence community or something like that and there's this sort of non-linear meandering path. Um, and a key component of that, uh, I think there were like two ingredients, right? One was uh, role models, something you mentioned, which is people that you look up to that uh, that do this thing. They're cybersecurity professionals. They they get into you know programming or whatever. And the second is an affinity towards technology. And so if you're in a context where you have role models that do this sort of thing and you've got technology around you, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a breeding ground for for these kinds of folks and and what you've done is sort of um, created a, a a pipeline from from very young age it sounds like middle schools where you're you know you're headed with this uh, all the way through PhD where you can nurture this 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 pipeline of of talent in like historically under underrepresented groups in in this uh, in this industry so um, it's it sounds like a Herculean task I would love to hear more about how you. Uh, how you do that? How do you cultivate P 
people and put mentors in front of them and immerse them in uh, uh, technology so that um, you know they have the potential to to learn about this this field. Yeah. So so they're mentors. So to mentorship, uh, in addition to uh, you know industrial mentors, um, peer mentors play a role as well. So faculty mentors. So again, it gets back to this. Um, it takes a village to raise. So, and we're doing this in a significantly resource-constrained environment. So most HBCUs, and again, I, I don't want to harp, continue to harp on this fact, but it's not easy to do, but we were able to accomplish this and through creativity and innovation. And uh, so, uh, to uh, our programs, we have a whole range of programs that support the various stages, pipeline stages uh, for the students. And we write grants, I mean, continuously, research grants, uh, workforce grants, and so forth to get so we can have funds uh, to to, support our students. And then once we create this environment, we have this vision, create the environment, and um, all we need are, are, are the students. And we bring them into this environment and, and they just flourish. And, um, but there's a lot of energy <laughs> that goes into forging these rocks into diamonds. And the, the other thing too, that's critical, essential in this, to work in this space is, our, is critical thinking. That's the one thing, because you have to be able to connect the dots, all right? So, um, and so that requires a certain kind of training because again, we, these students come from uh, these certain schools that um, are, are deficient in math and um, physics. So for example, you need those problem solving skills that's what we do with tinkerers. You get, you have to be able to figure figure it out. It's all puzzles, right? Right. And and you you don't have a script, you don't have a data sheet, so you have to logically decompose. So so you're dealing with a complexity, and you you're decomposing it down to a simple problem. And the, the only way to accomplish that is to have this through critical thinking that allows you to make the, the right kinds of assumptions and to validate them and so forth. And then the other thing is, is hypothesis driven. Yeah, like the scientific method, right? Yes, yes. So that's one of the things that we treat, we teach our students that, and that's essential to, um, uh, for them to have, to develop, to developing um, you know, the critical thinking skills. So it's great. I mean, it's a, it's a really unique approach, um, among, I think, cybersecurity talent funnels, uh, to, to use academic institutions to generate the, the talent. Um, you know, so many of, of my peers don't have formal training in, in any of these things. So you, you mentioned so many critical topics like cryptography and software engineering and reverse engineering and physics for like the physical layer. There's, there's so many 
um, components that 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 mesh into learning about this, being able to study the cybersecurity properties or engineer some cybersecurity properties of something. And a, and a lot of people who who practice in this field um, don't have formal training in it. They did, you know, if they even did an undergraduate degree, maybe it's in you know English or something. And they just this 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 curiosity they had to do it individually. And and the idea that you are able to to carefully curate an academic experience for 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 folks to to go through and then come out at the end or other end you know to use your analogy as a diamond as this like very um highly curated uh potent combination of talents is is it's a daunting thing and, and one of the things that that strikes me is um you know we see and, and you know you 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 have uh, obviously deep experience in, in computer engineering and computer science departments. But um, one of the things that that I've seen, um, both as, as someone who hires uh, technology talent and and has been around technology for a long time, is that academic institutions uh, that teach traditional computer science, for example, um, it's it's a really critical set of of skills. To to your point, a lot of critical thinking, a lot of sort of proofs and, and understanding at a theoretical level the properties of these computing machines, but you know they don't teach Java or professional C plus plus or software engineering principles. So that you know when you when you hit the ground running at a, at a so so I guess what I'm uh, what I'm what I'm getting at in a very roundabout way is um, how, how given that you have an academic pipeline, an academic approach to 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 building these well-rounded folks that can choose either to go into academia or, or to choose an, in a, a path in industry. Uh, how are you making sure that that pipeline stays uh, relevant to like the rapidly changing nature of, of IOT and cybersecurity? Ah, through our partnerships there. So we, uh, and it's our partnerships are founded on uh, research. So, we, you know, we're solving their problems that are our problems. So, so we, we find a common ground um, and we establish these win-win scenarios. So we're, in, we're the, the sponsor and, you know, the faculty um, are locked in on some kind of problem and the students and there's everything uh, is dragged along with that. Um, the student, the mentoring, the um, summer internship, all of that stuff. So it's a total package that we, you know, um, as opposed to, you know, um, as opposed to, you know, the traditional. So it's a combination of things that um, that's necessary, again. And then the, the, the heavy, um, and since we are hardware centric, um, which is unique, and that's by design, so that we have our own um, um, niche in this this very wide field. Um, and you mentioned, for example, the computer science folks. Computer scientists tend to abstract away from the hardware. So, if you take a computer, for example, computer science person, and you give them a piece of hardware, they're going to struggle. They wouldn't know what to do with it. So versus our students who understand computer architecture, they understand algorithms, they understand um, uh, data sets, they understand machine learning and so forth. They, I, I, I would um, 
hedge my bet that those students would um, do a better job at, you know. Um, in an industrial setting, right? In, in yes, a, in an industrial yeah. setting. Where in most instances, you're faced with a, a black box, right? You're given a black box. So the three scenarios we deal with, the white box, gray box, black box. White box, you got the data sheet, you know, the, 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 you know, the clock rate, you know, the, what countermeasures, gray box, you may not know, the, you know, the clock rate or the, what type of security methods are employed, but you know something. Black box, you don't know a thing. You don't know what kind of countermeasures are in there or whatever. So if you, you have to interrogate the device, you, so you shake it up, oh, it's done, you know, because it had a, <laughs> you let the magic smoke out. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, um, and students have to know how to approach these three different situations and how to navigate through. And so it's a reverse engineering. It's all about reverse engineering, working backwards, taking notes, validating, verification and validation. And hypotheses, to your point, I think I think it might work this way. How do I test yes. to see if yes. that's the case? Yeah, I think it's doing this. So, um, especially uh, if you're doing using uh, with side channel analysis techniques, you're using uh, fault injection. You zap it, the device. You stimulate it, and you observe the response. And you stimulate it and change the stimulus. And you, you zap it at a different portion of the device. Oh, you get a different response. And, and you do this, it's meticulous, but, you know, so. Yeah, one thing I wanted to add is that, you know, we engage our students very early in the process in terms of getting them exposed to the facilities, the lab facilities, um, at the time they enter the doors at Morgan State University. Um, and I think that has served itself very well in just maintaining the level of engagement that students have with the work um, that raises their confidence, um, their self-perceptions regarding the cyber area, um, that they're able to perform so well uh, when they go on their internships, um, when they are um, interacting with our external partners. So it's, it's, we don't just do this at the graduate level or just when they're seniors with their capstone design projects, but we really um, engage them right out the door as they come into Morgan State yep. University. And I think that really um, helps to solidify um, their mindset, their that those critical thinking, how they go about solving problems, how they approach their classes. Um, it really helps, and we've we've definitely seen the um, the products the product of that. So it's early and often. So it's continuous. It's a, it's 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 a, it's a and we also um, incorporate lessons learned. So there's a continuous improvement. So we we, we close the loop, and um, from what we learn from our experiences to improve. Our processes. So this is uh, the results from years of, you know, working with students. I've I've been in um, 
um, this profession since 1994. So in understanding and students <laughs> interacted with a broad class of students. So I've been at, um, you know, Cornell, Georgia Tech, MIT. I've been at these places and, and you know, where this land of plenty. And then you, I'm on, you know, uh, I'm at an HBCU um, and the students are different. So you have to, I had to, coming in, I had to uh, think differently. I had to, so I had to come up with these strategies to, um, to help achieve the same objective. That is such an interesting perspective to have been in so many different academic institutions and then bring what you've learned there and adapt them to a different setting. Tell me more about some of the some of those strategies that you've employed and what you've learned over you know along the way. Oh, you asked me to give away my secret sauce. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just a teaser. <laughs> okay, uh, because um, yeah, because I, I often get the question, well, why did you? Have, well, it, a lot of it. I, I believe a lot of it is passion. So the so I learned very early on, you know, from my dad, what you put in is what you get out. So you really, I mean, this is law of physics, law of the universe, energy, conservation of energy. Yeah, <laughs> energy. So I, you know, it starts with that, um, and a sense of commitment. And then one of the, uh, so these are intangibles. So uh, the other thing it takes is uh, you have to be patient. That's one thing I have to learn, learn, especially, I'm, and I'm not my wife. I mean, Michelle will tell you, I'm not the most <laughs> person um, because I'm very results driven. Spouses don't come with data sheets though. So, you know, you could be <laughs> forgiven. Yes. So, you know, there, there are a lot of, uh, you know, um, a lot of those, uh, I call intangibles that, you know, are part of the person. So, uh, but it requires those attributes to, to really, uh, in those ingredients that, that, that make for the kind of success. But it's that, and in, in, in leveraging the uh, experiences with the different types of students and knowing what you're working with. Okay, so um, understanding. So, and, and it's really an engineering problem. So you look at the traditional student profile um, at an MIT, Cornell, they very narrow distribution. The student profile at Morgan is all past system. So it's, very flat. So, how do you uh, uh, shape these students into to make it look like this? And so, you have to create, you have to uh, develop strategies to help um, uh, uh, shape the curve, so to speak. And through um, leveraging partners, making sure they. One of the things a lot of these kids don't have. Um, um, these experimental learning experiences until, or active learning experience until late in their, uh, to the fourth or fifth year. So, I mean, there's so many things. 
So understanding what you're working with is, and then coming up with strategies to to um, over, circumvent or overcome a lot of those things. So we we have um, various programs and activities that are sprinkled in. So Michelle mentioned we have this continuing. So we start, we have, for example, we have this um, pre-freshman um, course where students come in the summer prior to their freshman year, uh, uh, summer of their freshman, the semester, the start of their first semester of freshman year. And they, we, they get total immersion in calculus and physics, six-week program. And then, but also when it, we added a, a little sprinkle there, we give them two weeks of, you know, projects where we, we use hacker boxes, little projects with hacker boxes, just to, to you know, uh, wet their whistle. Then uh, I take some fraction of those students, probably the top students, and then... Um, because they do an assessment at the end of the uh, the program, the summer program, and so that they can place the students in the, in the right math section and, and physics section. Of those students, students, the tops, let's just say five percent, five to ten percent, I offer them scholarships. Okay, and uh, and assign them with a peer mentor. With my graduate students, and from who also went to this, likely went to the same school. Okay, so they are with them during the entire that undergraduate matriculation. Um, I help them get involved with uh, um, internships early. So I we assign them. We match them with the appropriate sponsor, and then, you know, and by the, such that by the time at the back end, um, uh, we we also engage them with the uh, capstone senior design projects. So some of them who actually make it, you know, to the senior design project phase, we actually um, at that point we we start talking about graduate school. At that point, I, I, uh, you know, there's an interest, a strong match. I give them, uh, offer them a fellowship. So don't worry about grad school, you're funded, blah, blah, blah. And this is how we get them into, so we usher them through this, the various stages of the pipeline and uh, interspersing uh, lots of active learning experiences they also work on projects in the lab so that we can impart certain skills. We advise them on the courses and then the peers also advise them. So there's a lot of inputs from, so that's how we do it. That's, that's the secret sauce. <laughs> I'll give you another ingredient to the secret sauce. Um, the other ingredient, uh, ingredient would be connections is having those connections, those relationships with the students yes. outside of the academics, yes. that's really key for the population of students that we serve. Oh. We 
We get the most success when we're able to establish those strong connections with our students. And yes, that I think, Kevin, you want to add to that? Yes, it's, it's very, the whole process is relational from the very beginning and maintaining that relationship throughout the engagement is key. Okay, so if you lose, because there's, and disruptions happen, things, life happens, but the key is uh, to re-engage the student as quickly as you can so that to maintain that uh, momentum. So it's, um, it's really relational. And it sounds like the partnerships that you forge between industry and government and the the students and faculty at CAP is cr- a critical component to this as well. What are some yeah. of the things that um, have made really successful partnerships? Like if you think of some of the best partnerships that you had historically, like what are the common themes? Research. Um, uh, research collaboration um, is tr- totally driven by research collaboration with the students engage where the student is out front. The, the student has given them that responsibility, um, giving them the freedom to grow and, and learn. So um, uh, that's, that's really the, the, the primary thing is, Putting this, this is student-centric, student-focused, they are the, the end goal. So everything's driven. So once we, you know, we get the student to a point, you know, so because we understand how this whole process works. You only get one shot. We're HBCU. So there's, uh, but so we better make it work. We don't get multiple opportunities. The students don't get multiple so we're sort of like, we take the approach. There was a, used to be a commercial uh, that came out during my era. Uh, it was a wine commercial. Paul Masson, we sell no wine before it's time. So we don't release the students to the, to the partner unless they are ready. We pre- There's a lot of preparation that goes into, so we, we prepare these students for that for success, so that you know taking into account what we know about the sponsor, you know what they're looking for in a student, what kind of skills, so we what kind of tools they use. So we prepare the students so that they hit the ground running when they get and because they're always going to be compared with students from X university and. The feedback we always get at the end of summer, wow, we're so impressed. They're like, wow. But why? our thing is, this is typical. This level of excellence is typical of our students. But um, and one of the things we, we understand that there's, there are these biases these, that we have to overcome and that... Um, Knowing that, because we, Michelle and I lived it, we've been there, we understand it very well. So in order to uh, prepare our students for success, the only way to do that is excellence, to overcome those things. 
because the one thing that, um, you know, that's one thing that that um, that no one can take away from you is that objective excellence, just just being awesome at what you do. Yeah. So another thing I wanted to add to that in terms of what our most successful partnerships have been. Um, has been those partners who are on board with our mission and our vision as it relates to, um, you know, the student population that we serve and the things that we're trying to do um, and also the investment that it takes to to do it well. Um, Those have been the most successful partners if once they're on board with who we are, what we're doing, yes. and how we're doing oh, it. Yeah. And they become the champions at their organizations, um, actually on our behalf, once they see um, the things that, oh. we're, that we're trying to do and the students that we're grooming. Yes, area. and that's an excellent point. Um, it goes back to what I mentioned earlier, that it, it boils down to put your money where your mouth is. If you come... And those are the best, you know, if you're transparent, honest, upfront with, you know, you want a real research relationship. We say, well, this is what we do. This is what a research relationship looks like. If you want to play with us, let's play. Here's how you play. Let's play. Um, as opposed to, the, you know, an alternative conversation, alternate conversation that goes, we want your students. That's a complete turnoff because they're not looking at the value of the research. Students are, it's the research. Can you help? So as opposed to, can you help us solve this problem? You have this, this core competency and the students are a natural byproduct of the process, right? So that's how we, we, um, um, proceed with all of our engagements. Okay, so it's always based on research. It has a research foundation. So that that's so interesting. And you know, I can say as a small business owner, like the way that we think about recruiting talent is ingrained in a very narrow, I think, way of thinking. Which is there's a there's a pool of of finished product out there. And my job is to is to find good fits uh, within that pool for the, the sorts of things that I'm trying to do. Uh, and your counterpoint is, hey, well, why don't we build a relationship here? You can have a number one, a, a, a stream of high quality work product that will help your core business. So that's in and of itself is is, is an important component of this. But also through this continuing relationship, you have a a way of shaping the the pipeline and and what comes out at the other end, and then it becomes sort of a a, a blended approach. Yes, and it, think about it: you get a person all the while you you engage with the student, you have a relationship. You think by the time they graduate, you make them an offer; they're not going to take your offer. You know the student; you observe them from the very beginning. You looked under the hood, kicked the tires and everything. (laughs) So 
Yeah, it's it's almost like what are you afraid of if 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 you're exposing the students the way that you do business and uh and and what what it's like working there. Um, they, you know, they, they already know the, your culture, okay? They because they worked there a number of summers, so and because you know, for example, uh, you know, uh, companies, some companies, uh, some agencies within the intelligence community, people have this fear our students some students you know oh we're going through the the clearance process and working for so they have this and why do they have these these misnomers it's because of um, lack of knowledge they don't know and and no mentors in their network that have gone through that process and can and can give them ground truth exactly yeah so yeah. we give them that so we they're all the Preconceived notions, all of that, are kind of flushed out by the time they, you know, they're ready to uh, for employment. Right. So, I mean, it it seems fairly clear that a, that a, a concrete way that industry partners can contribute to the cause, the mission uh, at, at CAB and Morgan State is partnering. You know, doing collaborative research and entering into an you know an arrangement with 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 the talented folks that you have on on research, and then as a byproduct of that, having a, a really high quality stream of like highly trained, largely U.S. citizens. Which let me tell you, that's a that's a a, a tough one, especially in in the D.C. corridor where a lot of the work that you do requires that. You know. Yes. So you want to? So we get folks. All kinds of folks. It's just been crazy. Um, wanting to, you know, say, oh, we want your students, blah, blah, blah. And the first thing I'm like, time out. Um, uh, do I know you? <laughs> do we have a relationship? <laughs> so, and it begins with, and it's formal. So let's sign mutual NDAs and let's have an MOU. Let's, formalize the relationship so that we can have a, an informed discussion. Right. Cause you want to make sure that, I mean, you, you put such a tremendous amount of effort over years in cultivating this yeah. coterie of like really talented folks. Like you want to be, I'm sure you want to be great kids. mentors and yeah, they're like your kids. You want to make sure that they're, they're. Yeah. So how am I going to, I don't know you and you want me to entrust my kids to you. So that's, it's that's basically how we feel about this. Yeah, and I mean, uh, the, it, it strikes me like as as part of the strategy that that you've you've built up over the past you know four or five years is 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 it's a virtuous cycle, right? You have uh, students that you start in this pipeline, and then there's this kind of revolving door of mentors that come back and are and are mentoring people. So it, it strikes me that it's of critical importance for these mentors to be placed and really. Um, strategically located parts of industry and academia, right? Correct. Uh, I mean, they play mentorship is the, uh, one of the uh, essential, the critical components that are ingredients that goes into this student, this success. There's two things: opportunity and preparation. So we prepare our students uh, such that when these opportunities come and uh, come. Um, come their way, they they are successful. So those those are the two main things. So we prepare them 
you know, uh, you know, as they go through this uh, uh, pipeline stage, such that when that opportunities, these, and they're going to be presented with these opportunities. But before we make sure they're prepared for those opportunities. That make makes so much sense, and so. I think it's pretty clear, you know, for for people that uh, not only I should say, I think it is in industry's self-interest to tap into programs like uh, like CAP and and uh, and get a really high quality stream of work product and and cybersecurity professionals that that much is clear. I think there's there's also a really important, um, you know, recognizing where we are as an industry that, you know, we all look a lot alike and we have a, a very narrow diversity of thought and that in and of itself is a, is a huge problem, yeah. right? And it's a self-perpetuating yes. problem. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, my, my question is, so it, it's, it's fairly clear from an industry perspective, you know, put your money where your mouth is and uh, build partnerships with these, with these incredible programs that are, that, that, that like, like what you're, when you're growing, what can individual, cybersecurity professionals do to be allies in in helping to solve some of this um, cybersecurity uh, diversity problem? Serve as mentors. Um, you know, volunteer to serve as mentors. Get involved with uh, the Gen Cyber program uh, so that the kids get to see you and learn what you do and so forth. Um, you know, one of the things that we notice also is the the when it with regard to women, there aren't that very many women. We notice this fall. So, um, the presence and women need to see other young ladies need to see women like Michelle in you know in front of them, so that they to get involved and they need to see them early and often so that 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 dynamic. It's, you know, it's, it's essential. Great. Uh, Michelle, um, tell me a little bit about uh, how you got into cybersecurity and did you have any mentors or give me a sense of what that what that path was like for you? So the path for into cybersecurity actually started with my husband, Kevin. <laughs> I, I um, if you... Um, when you read my uh, my bio, you see I have a very strong um, electronics, hardware, uh, communications, hardware type of background, um, and he also has that background as well. Um, but you know, he was always encouraging me. You're going to have to think a little bit larger. Things are changing. You got to get on board. <laughs> so, and that really began to just open up my mind as to. Um, exploring different areas. And one of that area was cyber, looking at what are the security issues or what are the cyber challenges um, that I can address with my particular um, background um, in electromagnetics, microwave, you know, um, energy, radiation circuits, and things of that nature. Um, and that's where the wireless security um, aspect came into it. So uh, it wasn't a, uh, a, a something that was um, groomed, like you said, from you know a curriculum. Um, it was kind of a haphazard way that I got into cyber. 
but I'm glad I did because it really has um, expanded and enhanced the the current capabilities um, that we're able to um, that we have inside of our center. So thank you, hubby. It <laughs> <laughs> was just like so. I, you know, it's the same thing. I inspire motivate my students and this is what we do so that's the the passion side of me um that comes out so that's that's really um that we talked to talked about earlier so that the passion um is a you know plays a big role in that and selling you have to sell you have to sell it yeah and it has to make sense but it's right. it's an easy easy sell once you have that when you have that aha moment it's like oh i didn't think about it that way so and and it took several conversations with my wife though so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think it's good when you know um you know when we consider ourselves peers in this industry of technology and science um that we have these types of conversations among each other um, to network, to see what is the next big thing. What are those um, big? Um, I forgot the word that NSF uses. These grand challenges, no. these areas that we need to start looking at next, and having these types of conversations, going out and networking with peers, I think is important, um, especially for faculty, uh, whether you're junior faculty or mid-career faculty. Or even um, if you are, you know, a, a startup or an industry, it's good just to have these types of conversations um, in different forums so that we can be able to um, look at and address the next technical challenge that, of course, will come up <laughs> right. within the near future. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Kevin, Michelle, I want to be respectful of your time. I mean, I, I think you... You should be. I'm. I'm sure you're. You're. You're so proud of what you've built. Um. And I, I know it's incredibly exciting from my perspective. That you know when we look at um the, the critical shortage, like just absolutely critical shortage of cybersecurity professionals, uh, in this in this space, uh, that you're taking you know a, a tried and true way of training um, highly technical people. You know the academic approach to things. And figuring out a way of meshing that with the 21st century way of, of doing business and bringing industry and government partners in. Uh, so that you have a pipeline of, sure, people that may continue on and do academic things, which is of critical importance, but also, you know, have a really practical set of experiences and skills so that they're immediately ready to go into industry if that's what they choose to do. All the while doing that uh, in, a, in a very critically underserved population um, that, that – uh, you know, represents a problem that is self-perpetuating. And so um, I'm really excited about this. Uh, and so I, I'm really happy that you you were able to set some time aside and uh, and talk through um, talk through what you're doing. So I uh, hope to have you on again really soon. Sure. Thank you for having us. Um, this is this was great. So um, this relaxes me before my class, my lecture. <laughs> you know, try lecturing to. Uh, bunch of kids who are, you know, they seem to be logged on, but you don't really know if they're there or not. Right. <laughs> Especially the cameras are off. Yep. The cameras are off 
and their microphone's off. So you're wondering if they're listening and paying attention. So you ask a question, you get, you know, uh, so then. It's easier to fade into the background if there's no camera on. <laughs> yeah. Well, definitely thank you for um, having us on board today. Um, it truly was an honor just to share of our experiences and to talk about our students and the process by which we um, create these creams of the crops at Morgan State University. So thanks again. Yeah, and thank you. And, and where can uh, folks learn more about uh, cream and 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 uh, the and cap? Oh, let me see. Uh, so let me uh, my our website at www.morgan.edu/cap. C-A-P. So. So you can find us uh, there, or you can navigate your way to uh, the Morgan website, the, the drop-down on research centers. You can, we're listed there, or you can navigate to the School of Engineering website, and we're listed there as well. Great. Well, Kevin, Michelle, you've been amazing guests. Thank you so much for spending some time with us, and I look forward again uh, to doing it again really soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains, and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. To learn more about Shift 5 and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.